Hello, aviation fans. Welcome to the Aries Podcast, Season 5, Episode 4. I'm Helwing Villamizar, and I'm joined by Rohan Anand and Vinay Bhaskara. And we have lots to talk about today. How's everyone? I'm doing pretty well. So I'm gearing up for my big international trip that I've taken in a long time. I'm going to be flying Japan Airlines from Chicago to Delhi via Haneda. Uh, inshallah, all goes well in business class. I even have a layover in Tokyo Haneda for the night. And so that should be interesting. Hopefully I have the energy to like go out and see some of the city. I haven't ever been to Tokyo, at least as far as the city is concerned. I'm only been to Narita Airport. And then I will be flying internally within India on Indigo and Vastara to go to Bangalore. And then I'm going to go to Kathmandu uh, for a wedding in Nepal uh, and fly Nepal Airlines or, or Royal Nepal Airlines. I think they changed up their their naming convention. And then on the return, I'm flying all Nepal, uh, say routing on the way back through Haneda uh, in business class. I don't believe I'm going to get the room product. I feel like they're using that out of JFK. And similarly, out of uh, the Japan Airlines network, I believe that the Airbus A350-1000 that has like the brand new Japan Airlines uh, concept is coming only out of JFK at this time. So um, I always seem to fly products on airlines like right as they're being phased out. So, you know, mm-hmm. that's <laughs> that's how I roll. Get to fly 222 business class on United, the last of the, the last of its kind. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. But now on United's, like, except for their 757s, they should be completely uh, Polaris across the air. Actually, I, I take that back. Acor- according to Emirates, 232 in business class is, you know, world class, five star, oh, best airline in the world. So it was outdated in 2017 when I last flew it. And the fact that it's 2024 and it's still the case. Woof. Yeah. How about you, Vinay? What's going on? I. Nothing as exciting as flying uh, Japan Airlines' second best business class product and ANA's second best business class product. Um, I'm going to be going to South America um, at the end of February. So excited for that. Going back to India in April. Um, less excited about that because I'm going to be working um, from an Indian time zone, which is never fun. But yeah, just um, no, nothing as exciting as all of that. I'm just going to be on United in good old Polaris again and again and again and again. And then again, we're in well, South America. You're going uh, Buenos Aires and Sao Paulo. Oh, nice. Awesome. Uh, just for fun. Uh, no, no. It's going to be a nice rotation of like hotel, meeting room, hotel, meeting room. That's usually how uh, work, tra- work travel goes. I'll be doing work through in India um, and I'll be fortunately staying at a hotel in Bangalore that's next to my company's office. So Global Technology Park and it'll be my first time in Bangalore. Um, when I'm in Delhi, I'll be going to my company's Noida office, which is a little bit more of a commute. But while I'm in Delhi, I'll be mostly staying in South Delhi with my family. So, uh, I'm going to New York for my birthday. So that's in May. And I don't know if I'm going to try out, I don't know, Delta or JetBlue or even Spirit. I'm not sure. Spirit before it, before it dies, right? Right. Yeah. So we're recording this on the 31st of January, 2024, uh, just a couple hours before it becomes February. And January means earnings seasons for the entirety of the fiscal year for the previous year for U.S. airlines and the third or fourth quarter, rather, operating results. So most of the airlines have announced with the exception of Frontier and Spirit. So by going through uh, the major big four U.S. airlines, as well as uh, the three kind of in the middle that I like to call JetBlue, Alaska, and Hawaiian will go down by each one. So for Delta, the full year operating margin was 9.5%. Q4 was 9.3%. Coming up next was United with a full year at 7.8%. Pure Q4, it was 73 American came in next at 5% for the full year and 5.1% for the quarter. Southwest, uh, not so well. Negative 5% for the uh, fourth quarter and 1% for the full year. JetBlue, not much better. Negative 2.9% for the fourth quarter and negative 2.4% for the entire... Actually, sorry, switch that. Full year was 2.9%. Fourth quarter was negative 2.4%. 
and Hawaiian, woof, this was really rough. Negative 19% for the full year and negative 12.1% for the Q4 period. Alaska did pretty well. They actually were between American and United. Um, and for the full year, which was the only metric I was able to pull, it was three uh, 7.5%. So essentially, we have in the black, Delta, United, and Alaska fully, uh, as well as American. Southwest had one in the black, one in the red, and then JetBlue and Hawaiian were both in the red. So lots to unpack here. Uh, I would like to start by just saying that I did not expect that there would become a day where Southwest Airlines would be literally at the bottom of the pack for all of the big four U.S. airlines. And I didn't expect also that uh, Hawaiian's numbers would get as bad as that they are. Uh, so both of you, what are you? What are your reactions to these uh, earnings results? I mean, I think the first thing that immediately jumps off the page or, or jumps jumps out at you when you hear those results laid out like that is there's sort of is starting to be a stack ranking of U.S. airline financial results, right? You've got the full service carriers, the carriers that have um, first class cabins at the top, right? That's United, that's Delta, that's Alaska, American, though American, you know, maybe a little bit um, more middle of the pack in terms of its performance. Um, Then you've got kind of Southwest in a category of its own, right? Where it's the best run of the LCCs and with, you know, the strongest markets and the biggest scale. Um, And then you have all the other sort of low cost oriented leisure-oriented carriers struggling, right? And and Spirit and Frontier haven't reported results yet, but I'm sure they're going to be on the struggle bus as well. Now, I think a factor that you absolutely can't overstate um, is all of the impact of um, the GTF engine issues and the degree to which that impacts capacity for different carriers. In the same way that Alaska's first quarter results, one of the things that it previewed in its Earnings call was, hey, first quarter results going to be impacted by about, by about $150 million because of, um, you know, the 737 MAX 9 grounding. Similarly, you know, if you look at uh, Spirit, Hawaiian, JetBlue to an extent, they I think they were all impacted by the GTF issue. Certainly, um, Hawaiian and, and Spirit, for whom, you know, geared turbofan powered, Pratt & Whitney geared turbofan powered A320 Neo family aircraft, that's a large portion of capacity for those carriers. So that's part of the story. But I think the bigger story is, is something that we've touched on more or less continuously since, since we re- relaunched the podcast, which is that the operating environment for low-cost carriers is pretty broken in the U.S. right now. And that's for a couple of different reasons. Some of it is temporary in terms of there was a surge of competitive capacity into um, you know domestic and short-haul international markets, right as demand was shifting from those markets to longer haul international travel, especially for vacationers, um, for um, you know the, the the sort of premium leisure travel set, right? But there's also other structural factors I think that we've called out before that aren't going to go away, right? Um, the legacy carriers have densified their aircraft and densified their cabins, and they've gotten better at competing with low cost carriers um, in terms of cost structures, in terms of fare products like basic economy. And then I think even more importantly is the cost of labor and the cost of pilots, right? In, in a world with a pilot shortage, if you're Spirit, you're always going to get outcompeted by Delta or United or American because fundamentally that same plane, right? Flying an A321 for Spirit is going to produce less revenue than flying an A321 for American or for Delta, right? And so on some fundamental level, if you're a pilot, the legacies, the big, the big boys are always going to pay more. And so if you're Spirit, in a world where pilot supply is constrained, you can't compete. Now, Southwest maybe doesn't have this problem as much, or Southwest, I think the problems are more on the demand side, but there's just a very interesting pattern emerging, and I don't know that this trend is going to immediately dissipate unless we get like a recession in the U.S. that fundamentally reshapes travel patterns. I also believe that in general, and I was thinking about this last night, if we just isolate the big four, <clears throat> American, Delta, United, and Southwest, Really, I think that there's two categorizations of both. Delta and United still see themselves as an airline. They have hubs in places where people want to fly, even though the talk now is that business travel hasn't returned to 2019 patterns. Those two airlines are most likely poised to capture that, given where their hubs are, but also given how they've positioned their products in a premium sense. I feel like American and Southwest, on the other hand, they see themselves as travel companies, and they're way more 
oriented around their loyalty programs as sort of the main driver of, of revenues and trying to create a travel ecosystem where people are all about like just that brand and that loyalty factor. And I think that that's kind of showing up in these results. And I think that's kind of showing up in like, you know, if it's all about the the leisure, right? Like United is going to be and the Delta are going to be the ones that kind of run towards the head of the pack and American and Southwest are going to be lesser. So and then you have Alaska that's kind of like above American and Southwest that, you know, is able to still kind of retain that corporate uh, sort of presence out of Seattle and be able to attract that as well as kind of rely you know, kind of nicely on its Alaska flights as ma- big drivers of revenue for them. Yeah. I mean, some of it is also, there. there is a little bit of a um, old world versus new world dynamic, right? You look at the places where Delta has its hubs. Um, Atlanta is obviously a very fast growing Sunbelt city. So you kind of throw that, put that off to the side. But you look at the rest of Delta's hubs, New York City, Boston, Seattle, Los Angeles, um, you know, uh, Detroit, Minneapolis, right? These are all historically important large markets full of well-off individuals, but they're not necessarily growing markets in terms of population, right? Um, Or even necessarily in terms of economic growth. You look at United, something very similar happening. They've got hubs in New York. They've got hubs in the DC area. They've got a hub in Chicago, um, Los Angeles. Denver maybe doesn't fit the pattern. Again, that's a growing market. But for the most part, um, you know, United and Delta have hubs where the money is today and where the population is today, historically important markets. You look at American, on the other hand, they've pulled back in Chicago. They've pulled back in um, New York. They've certainly pulled back in um, uh, you know Philadelphia, even though that's still obviously a more important hub, you know, it's still a pretty large hub in its own right. Where are they growing? They're growing in Charlotte. They're growing in Phoenix. They're growing in DFW. These are, in some ways, the markets of the future, right? These are the fastest growing population centers. You can easily tell a story where Dallas becomes the busiest airport in the world at some point, and Dallas becomes, you know, the second largest city economy in America, right? Like, you know, you can you can tell a great growth story that involves Dallas. But the, the trade-off there is the rich people, the kind of people that can actually pay the fare premium to fly on your airline, right? They don't necessarily live in these Sunbelt cities in the same way, right? And these Sunbelt cities have a ton of low-cost carrier competition. They don't have the kinds of capacity constraints that make a place like Newark Newark or New York JFK profitable as profitable to fly out of. So it's a really interesting dynamic. And I think something similar is happening with Southwest. Now, Southwest is obviously a lot more varied. Obviously, they've got a huge operation at Chicago Midway, you know, proportional to their network. They've got a huge operation in Baltimore, Washington. But, you know, you look at where Southwest has grown, it's places like Nashville. It's places like um, Denver. Again, that's an overlap with United. But, you know, they're big, they've got big presences in places like Phoenix, Vegas, et cetera. Um, and again, these are all growing population centers but they're nowhere near as wealthy and thus nowhere near as useful for generating a fare premium, which Southwest now has to do because its cost base has jumped way up in the past 15 years. Um, and I think American is really interesting because American in particular, I want to call it as being really interesting because um, even though I disagree strategically with some of the decisions that have been made, um, you know, particularly if you hear sort of Vasu Raja as kind of the, the mouthpiece for some of these decisions, the thing that's tricky about American is you can actually make a case that he's right just on the wrong timeline or that they're right strategically, but just on the wrong timeline, right? At some point, a hub in Dallas is going to be worth more than a hub in Chicago. That point isn't today in 2024. But if you sort of squint at the population and economy trends, you know, you fast forward 15 years, you'd probably rather have a hub in Dallas than in Chicago. Just, um, you know, just looking, just, you know, you, you can sort of read, read a trend line, Right. You'd probably rather have a hub presence in Charlotte or in Phoenix than in Philadelphia. But today, there's a lot of really wealthy, well-off consumers in Philadelphia who are the kinds of people that need to that need to fill your planes. Let's go to another example. American has been made perhaps the biggest move, to your point, in this sort of like anti-corporate, anti-business travel trend of, hey, we want everyone to book directly through American.com. We want everyone to be a member of AA Advantage. We're moving away from managed travel. We're moving away from travel agents. And again, you fast forward 10 or 15 years, like that's probably going to be the default, right? I think managed travel is on the decline both as a um, both as a business in and of itself and as a proportion of even business travel moving forward. But that's not the case today, 
right? The case today is that the people that spend eight to $10,000 on a business class ticket for your long haul international flights, they're going to be using their, their, their corporate portal. And when you don't have a presence there or when you have tilted your um, sales structure against that, you're leaving money on the table today. And so I think there's almost a curse which for AA, which is that they're right about a lot of things, but not on the present timeline. And that makes it, that puts them in a really tricky position. Now, we have talked a lot about American Airlines and their international strategy. And we've talked a lot about how the international markets that Delta and United serve out of their hubs have been nice tailwinds for both of them in terms of being able to not only um, kind of counteract seasonality, like we've seen, for example, some of these European routes from United going year round or the ability for them to extend the seasonality uh, beyond certain parts of the year. And how American is a little bit different in the sense that it's highly seasonal in the transatlantic market. It's virtually not present in the trans-Pacific market. And it's got a lot of presence in Latin America. However, you know, that again is also a seasonal market, right? We're seeing American drawdown, uh, DFW to Santiago, a lot of the long haul flights from JFK, like to Santiago into uh, Colombia and to Mexico City, those haven't worked out very well. And maybe kind of slightly switching gears away from earnings to discussion on routes, we know that American <clears throat> has received the authority to start JFK Haneda. And that was something that they had been competing against United for, who wanted to move their Houston to Narita route to Houston to Haneda. And in conjunction with that, we know that on February 1st, tomorrow, American has already dropped a little teaser on Instagram, just kind of like what they've done in the past and what we've discussed about on this podcast before. Um, you know, they had already announced their summer 2024 routes to um, Europe from Philadelphia, I believe, to Nice, Copenhagen and Naples and Dallas forward to Barcelona. And now there's this potential for American to maybe be adding some capacity we already know that they've received the ability to fly to uh, Haneda from New York JFK, but there's also some discussion that Chicago to Honolulu is coming back. Um, that's a route that kind of was a very um, heavily impacted route from the bankruptcy days, as well as kind of started again in the uh, you know 2018, 2019, and even some of 2020 period in 2021, um, you know, from from COVID but actually might now be back in uh, in the playing game. And then there's also rumors that it will be flying to Australia from DFW, which makes me happy. Um, it looks like there's been a little bit of a, a spill from Executive Traveler in Australia, but saying that they're going to launch flights from Dallas forward to Brisbane. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's definitely something to be said too about how American, uh, you know, it's funny how four years ago we were talking about they were going to fly from Seattle to Bangalore and uh, from Seattle to London Heathrow. And that's changed. Now, the whole strategy is different, right? They're still going to try to fly international. They're going to try to fly, you know, with 51 uh, seats in their 787s uh, with sliding doors. So what are y'all's reactions to some of these uh, speculations? Well, I just want to point out that this is two more joint venture hubs, right? Um, Tokyo Narita, of course, being a hub for joint venture partner Japan Airlines and Brisbane, of course, being a hub for partner Qantas, who already flies from Melbourne or, or sorry, Melbourne and um, Sydney to DFW. So uh, really, it's more of the same. Like DFW to Brisbane is objectively like very exciting, but it also you kind of a resumption. It's a resumption because when the long right from 747 first came to DFW in 2011, they couldn't fly westbound on that 747-400ER. The only airline with the 747-400ER was Qantas to uh, Sydney nonstop. So they used the 747 for a technical stop in Brisbane, although they did have local rights from Dallas to Brisbane. And then that continued to Sydney and it flew nonstop on the way back. And it's when it switched to the A380 in 2014, they were able to go Dallas, Sydney in both directions. Sorry, just had to end up. No, no, no. Good, good call out. Um, I mean, will they be successful on JFK to Haneda? Who knows? In theory, you'd hope that they've got a JV partner on either end, but the kinds of people that fill the front cabin of, you know, New York JFK to Haneda, we just talked about them, and American seems to be pulling back from that passenger cohort. So it'll be interesting, right? They don't they don't have the kind of strength that they did even a decade ago in New York, certainly relative to United or Delta, and 
yeah, you know, and they couldn't make JFK to Japan work back then. Yeah. Um, obviously, slot timings and, and other factors played a role in that. But um, fundamentally, I, I think New York JFK to Haneda is going to be a tricky route for, for them to operate. And it's not clear to me that they're operating it because they actually think it'll be profitable versus they're just trying to block Delta or United from getting the slot. Um, that being said, of course, American has the smallest presence at Haneda Airport of the major U.S. carriers. Um, Delta, of course, got a bunch of routes to um, Haneda, basically moving over most of its Tokyo Narita flying. So they fly from Atlanta, Detroit, Honolulu, Los Angeles, Minneapolis, and Seattle. Uh, United, of course, flies from Chicago, L.A., Newark, San Francisco, and Dulles, only missing Denver and um, Houston. Um, and then, of course, you know, Japan Airlines and ANA have their own large Trans-Pacific route networks from Haneda. So I think DFW Brisbane will work, right? Um, it's counter seasonal flying, which helps, especially as they're pulling down some of some of the um, some of the Latin America flying, like you, like you called out. Um, but I, you know, for for, for what are what are our objectively sort of sexy international long haul international routes, I think these are actually pretty mundane. And you know, I don't know that they'll ever make a profit on New York JFK to Haneda, but I also don't know that it quite matters. Actually, I have a question for you guys. Um, what informs the U.S. Department of Transportation in its decision to process these long-haul routes? You know, is it public benefit, competition, airline efficiency? Is it what you guys are just discussing right now, the points that you've made? Well, I actually have always wondered that myself, and I've been angry at the past, uh, angry in the past, but mostly at the DOJ, and the DOJ being anti-logical or illogical with some of their reasoning. But the DOT is a little bit different. And again, I know that everyone likes to think that I'm uh, you know, loving on Pete Buttigieg over here. You know, my boy, Mayor Pete, out in, you know, the Department of uh, Transportation. But really, I do believe that there are probably some very skilled people in the Department of Transportation that are specifically looking at this stuff and have access to thousands, if not millions of pieces of data that they're able to analyze in looking at these sort of things. I don't, I don't know how much I can speak to like their companies. I just don't think that they're visible, right? We see visibility from airlines, like from network planners or from Scott Kirby going all the way up to Airbus to talk to them about, um, you know, maybe uh, going 737 MAX 10, replacement because you know he can he can do that the airlines are a for-profit company you know they want to have leaders that are showing they're doing their homework and they're putting out this information and even always in the case of tokyo and haneda and china and asia slots it's gotten really ugly in the past like northwest airlines and united flinging stuff at each other's back at the day back in the day about china but in reality with the dot it's just it's it's so different because they are literally trying to act in the favor of the consumer, not the producer. They're the supplier, rather. So Vinay may disagree with me here, but I, I find that there's probably a little bit more of a black box there. And I don't really have a straightforward answer. I just wanted to yes and you because I've also thought about that a lot. No, I, I, I would agree that the DOT tends to be a little bit less um, what's the right word here. Um, it, it tends to be a little, it's certainly less ideological than the DOJ, right? Which we've seen wild swings in how it treats the airline industry from administration to administration. It's partly the nature of what the DOT is. I think it has tended to be, follow a consistent set of principles, even if I don't always agree with those principles, right? So it prioritizes new entrant carriers over existing carriers, right? Which can be good for competition, but also necessarily isn't always good for competition, depends on circumstances. It tends to prioritize um, specifically for for Haneda, it tends to prioritize new gateways, right? New a, new airports getting service from a U.S. carrier um, over, uh, you know, um, existing uh, existing gateways, right, or existing routes. Now, in this case, because you know, American was applying for JFK, which is already served by its joint venture partner, um, you know, Japan Airlines, because United was asking for Houston, which was already served which it already serves to Narita and its partner ANA already serves to Haneda. I don't know that there was as clear of a story, but American is smaller in Haneda. So on like 
first principles, I suppose they're closer to a new entry carrier. Um, until the Alaska, you know, Hawaiian merger gets gets approved, then you might see a new carrier from Seattle, but maybe, right? But I, I, I like I think fundamentally it looks at access to for for new airports or and then you know access to new airports for a U.S. carrier, right? Um, and it looks at current competitive position in the in that destination market, right? So, if, for example, if it, if it's still assigned London Heathrow slots, right? Obviously, that that no longer applies because of a, a wide variety of treaties. Um, but if it's still assigned London Heathrow slots, it would probably give Heathrow slots to Delta over American and United, both of which have more operations there. So, I think there's like a pretty consistent pattern, and it would favor new destinations. Like, let's say United for some reason wanted to add, or sorry, Delta for some reason wanted to add Austin to Heathrow, it would favor that over giving United, I don't know, like, um, another LAX to Heathrow, right? Like, like, like there's a pretty consistent pattern to how the DOT applies its logic. Um, so I don't disagree with that. Uh, there are other things that I, that I don't, I dislike about how the DOT is run or, or makes decisions, but I don't think route authorities are an area where there's like a, where I have a particular phone to pick. Now let's talk about Australia, right? <clears throat> so let's just say American is indeed expanding into Australia. Uh, we've talked about Australia on this podcast. We've talked about Asia Pacific. We've talked a lot about transatlantic. And I think we've also talked about how the earnings discussions on these carriers have evolved from pre-pandemic times or even maybe even after pandemic a little, where they would break down operating results by region. You would go through each of the earnings call transcripts and you would even see in some of the presentations some real broken down information about geography, such to the point where they would even present numbers. You know, you could see like, you know, a negative six operating margin and, you know, Trans-Pacific, you know, if, especially if the Japanese Japanese yen was weak, for example, or, you know, a 2% in Latin America and then a 14% in Europe. And in this case, that's not happening any longer. And we're just seeing things at an entire level for the airline. Um, and that's across the board. That's not just the big four. It's also with the lower cost carriers as well particularly as they spread their hub domiciles across different parts of the United States. So with Australia, it's diff- it's interesting because there's no need for the DOT to be involved since that is an open skies market. However, there's been a big push over the last couple of years with United adding a ton of capacity into Brisbane, into Melbourne, really also upgaging Sydney flights, adding flights from Auckland, uh, so we also have seen Delta add some f- capacity in there as well to Auckland. Um, you know, United's getting closer to Virgin and uh, also trying to, you know, maintain its JB with, with Air New Zealand. So is American also just going to be adding a lot of capacity into a market that can actually absorb it? And will Qantas and the JB help with kind of making that a little less risky for both? Yeah, by, by definition, Qantas and the JV helps a lot. Um, and I think part part of what you see there is that there's really strong demand to Los Angeles, right, which is the other nonstop destination served by Qantas. Um, and there's enough or like there's enough demand to fill the plane from Brisbane to Los Angeles, along with all the d- domestic connections that Qantas offers to, you know, northern and eastern Australia, such that DFW is going to be really used to connect to the rest of the U.S., right? That's why they have these two routes. Um, but I think the the factor for why United is sorry why American is adding this route as opposed to Qantas is simply that Qantas already operates Melbourne and Sydney, and with JVs there are you know complex agreements that kind of govern this. But you need to have some sort of balance of capacity between between the two partners within the JV. Um, well, I also so, think that there's limitations too in in JV scope. Right, there has to be a negotiated agreement in terms of how much percentage wise from an either ASM perspective or seats perspective, whatever revenue, you name it, you know, has to kind of be driven by each participating carrier. And right. it's a lot more, it's a lot more complex. Let's say for example, with the transatlantic a plus plus agreement that between United and Air Canada and all the Lufthansa group airlines like Swiss and Lufthansa and Austrian and uh, right. Brussels and, and you name it. Then in the case of Qantas and American, uh, Qantas has received a lot of 787-9s as replacements and initially to also be able to uh, supplement its 747 and A380 operations. When they had to take a lot of those out during pandemic, Qantas was a little bit more hamstrung in terms of what it could do. Granted, it could rely on Jetstar for some of its you know long-haul flying, 
But in reality, we've seen them, yes, come back to DFW on a daily basis, add DFW to Melbourne, but they've also added Auckland to New York. And they're also getting ready to prepare for Project Sunrise, which the A350-1000s will be part of. And, you know, the, the New York to Sydney and potentially New York to Melbourne routes will fall under the American Airlines JV. So that's also something to consider that's going to happen down the line. And there's, you know, even more potential with the One World Alliance with, you know, connect partners such as Fiji Airlines being part of it or Air Tahini Nui. If Alaska and Hawaiian go through, that will also augment just like a lot of presence in the Pacific and a lot of Pacific feeder routes. So there's a, there is a potential for them to create kind of a big behemoth. It just really depends on how large the Australia slash New Zealand uh, to U.S. market is. And also, you know, if American tourism and Canadian tourism, because that also kind of overflows in, you know, is able to bring a lot of those people to those continents. Pretty interesting. For sure. For sure. Um, I mean, I, I, I do think that Qantas is definitely a lot bigger from Australia to the U.S. than American is, right? They operate, you know, five flights a week from Auckland to New York JFK on the 787. They have six flights a week from Brisbane to Los Angeles on the A330. They've got four flights a week from Melbourne to DFW, again, on the 787. They've got 10 flights a week from Melbourne to LAX, um, mostly on the 787 with some A380s mixed in there. Um, They've got uh, seven flights a week from DFW to Sydney to DFW. That's all on the 787 as well. Um, They've got six flights a week from Sydney to Honolulu, right? Uh, Nine from Sydney to LAX. I'm just looking at this this past week, Um, mostly 380s from Sydney to LAX. Um, and then they've got three from Sydney to SFO, all in the 787. Um, so you add all that up to 50 flights a week, 14,000 seats. And then you kind of do the comparison. We're using Cerium for all of this, of course. Um, if you look at Cerium for American, American flies, uh, you know, um, basically three daily flights. Auckland to DFW, Auckland to LAX, and Sydney to LAX. So just a very, very different um, level of scale. And there are about 7,000 seats across the same period. So just... They're about half the size right now. So this is going to bring the, the JV a little bit more into balance. Absolutely. And while we're on the subject of routes, we actually can mention that Austrian Airlines is going to be flying to Boston. Boston continues to be so hot, like I've said, for like many, many years. Because literally in the last 10 years, it's just brought in all these new airlines. It started with Japan Airlines, and then it continued to include, uh, you know, love from Emirates and Turkish and Copa and Qatar and Korean Air and the list goes on. So Etihad recently announced that they would start Boston flights and that's going to arrive in the morning time. I do believe Austrian had intended to launch Boston in the spring of 2020, um, according to One Mile at a Time's Ben Schlappig, shout out to Glenn, uh, something I read there. But then the pandemic deferred it and then Boston hadn't come back on Austrian's radar until this year. And it also appears that Austrian did fly to Miami, but that's no longer going to be part of the network. So Austrian's U.S. network will essentially entail L.A., Chicago, Boston, New York, Newark, and Washington. So um, it's nice to see another Lufthansa Group airline at capacity. I think that Austrian has a better soft product, even though I'm not flown it, but just from the pictures, a better soft product than Lufthansa and uh, probably even better than Swiss, at least in the, um, in the front part of the cabin. Yeah, um, Boston is hot, like you, like you called out. I think it's... Um, it's interesting why exactly it's so hot because other markets of this style, right? Um, if you think of like places like Chicago, um, New York to some extent, uh, San Francisco, definitely haven't seen the kind of like surge of growth that Boston has. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, just another another Lufthansa. I mean, to be fair, for the Lufthansa group specifically, Boston has been a hugely important market, right? Yeah, um, they have the E380 on Munich flights in the summer. Um, you know, it has it, they have multiple daily flights to Frankfurt. So, so Boston is a really, really important um, sort of destination point for the the founder group of airlines. Um, but it, it's it's still quite interesting to to kind of observe what's happening there. Well, what I don't understand is how do they have the terminal space to accommodate these wide body long haul flights, like. You know, Etihad, I can kind of understand because it's coming in in the morning, but like Austrian will be coming in in the evening when there's like a huge rush. And if you've got the likes of Emirates and BA and Lufthansa operating E380s into Boston, 
how exactly are they going to be able to, I don't know, avoid congestion? Gate space congestion? Yeah. Um, uh, say a quick prayer. Like, I, like I, I, don't, I don't think there's any way of, of, of avoiding. And there's Delta that's like adding all this international capacity. It's going to be. A Delta, at least it's departures, right? A lot, like some of them can be handled from Terminal A, that's right? True. So Delta at least has a, has a little bit more space. But um, yeah, no, it, it's it's really quite interesting to observe. Because uh, if, you, if you look at the summer, right? Lufthansa is twice daily to Frankfurt. Swiss is twice daily to Zurich. Um, right. They've got a, a, an early afternoon and a, and a late evening departure. Same with Lufthansa. Right. They've got an early evening and like a 10 p.m. departure. And then um, they are daily to Munich on the A380. So that's a lot of capacity in there. They're, you know, um, twice daily with A340s to Frankfurt. Swiss is twice daily with A330s. Um, then you add Austrian into the mix. Uh, Lufthansa is, I think, the biggest sort of international carrier grouping um, right. They, 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 that's, you know, five daily transatlantic flights that they'll be operating this summer. So very, very, very interesting to observe for sure. Love, love having Syrian access to LA because like, yeah, that allows us completely, to... completely changes how easy <laughs> it's it game is. Game changer, right? Um, well, and actually let's kind of also talk about, you know, kind of threading Boston into um, something else. I saw Aeromexico is re-adding Boston services. Um, Aeromexico dropped a lot of U.S. routes. I remember back in 2018 when it filed for bankruptcy. Um, and I also know that there have been a couple other airlines that have filed in the U.S. for bankruptcy in Latin America. We've seen LATAM do that. And now Goal has done that too. Goal was actually a former client of mine back in my Accenture days. Um, so I got to see a lot of stuff, you know, kind of going on in the airline on the IT side, um, not so much on the revenue side. And I even flew Goal back when I lived in Latin America. I was living in Chile and I flew it on a fifth freedom route that went from Santiago to Buenos Aires to, I think, Sao Paulo, then to Porto Alegre. So it was fascinating to me that it kind of operated this very Southwest Airlines similar style and doing multiple legs in a single flight um, O&D, so to speak, on a narrow body, single cabin type of thing, low-cost carrier designed to be an alternative to Varagi, which had all these issues and, you know, also TAM and Vaspi and there's like a full graveyard of Brazilian airlines out there. Um, but Goal just never seemed to kind of get, you know, what it wanted and it never seemed to get, um, you know, ahead of Azul. So that's one topic I'd like to discuss. And then kind of threading back to Mexico, this antitrust immunity situation with Delta. So what are our thoughts on on those two topics? Well, let's talk about goal first. I mean, I think, you know, for, for, for the longest time now, Brazil has been a really, really challenging operational market, right? The economy um, has sort of really tanked across the past decade, right? There's been ups and downs, but it's, it's been in, a, in rough shape over the past decade. Um, there's a lot more competition, to your point, with Azul having you know, grown by leaps and bounds. Now it's done some stuff that we've questioned here on the podcast before Azul has. Um, but, you know, Azul uh, is about as big as Goal in a lot of their key airports in places like, um, you know, uh, Sao Paulo, in places uh, like Belo Horizonte, right? They're, they're even bigger. And so I think that the competition is one piece of the puzzle. I think the, you know, tough nature of the Brazilian economy uh, is another piece of that puzzle. And I think just fundamentally, right, there's there's probably too much competitive capacity, especially with Latcom having been bolstered or the original Tom Airlines having been bolstered by merging with Lawn and kind of getting a continent-wide scale. So that that that's going to be really interesting to observe. It also does seem like there has been some mismanagement um, or, you know, just like a tough operating position that goes beyond just the general market dynamics and is specific to some decisions made by the carrier, COVID-19 was, was a tough part of that as well. Um, so I don't really have too many thoughts. It, it's not shocking. And they've got a ton of debt that uh, they're, they're carrying as, as, a, um, as, a, as a carrier. Yeah, they, they do. Compared to other airlines, uh, they entered the pandemic with debt, I think. So they were more, more vulnerable. And that market hasn't recovered as maybe the U.S. market or others. Like they have a dependence on the domestic market for sure. 
Yeah. And well, I mean, I, I think the interesting thing is, is that like a lot of it comes down to the debt load, which was north of eight billion, um, sorry, which was north of four billion dollars and uh, high leasing expenses. Right. The actual operating sort of day to day seems like it's OK. Um, but but yeah, it, it's it's not a total surprise um, because of its sort of creditor load and the fact that it took on um, or becoming even more indebted during the um, the, the pandemic. Yeah, and it's a usual recourse for airlines to just restructure and, you know. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, I also think that another piece of the puzzle, and, and this is there's something that we've hit on in sort of disparate, disparate ways um, for a few different carriers now, right? But, um, you know, one, one of the things that I always like to hammer home is that the low-cost carrier model depends on growth, right? The way that you as a low-cost carrier keep your cost structure low as your workforce ages and matures as your operations age and mature and get more complex is you have to grow. Part of the secret sauce for Ryanair and why it's still consistently so profitable, part of the secret sauce for Indigo and why it's so profitable is that they are constantly, was there, they're constantly growing. Um, it's part of what made Southwest so successful for so long yeah. was that it just continues, continued to grow and grow and grow. Now, this is not necessarily the way, the path to success for a legacy carrier, for a full service carrier. There, it's a lot more complex, and it you know you're you're kind of being reactive to market conditions and so on and so forth. But as a low cost carrier, you have to grow. And in the last couple of years, really, especially post pandemic, we've seen supply cons- you know we've we've seen constraints in low cost carriers' ability to grow in terms of competition for pilots. We've also seen aircraft availability, both in terms of deliveries, right, with Airbus and Boeing not ramping up production, and also in terms of groundings for carriers that operate the A three twenty Neo family aircraft. Yeah. That's also constrained their ability to grow. And I don't think it's an accident that you're seeing low-cost carrier fortunes start to tumble a little bit, right? Have become much more uneven around the world in a period where growth has been constrained by factors outside of their control. So I don't think it's an accident that this is happening now to goal um, because Boeing, its its main supplier, has been struggling to deliver aircraft. Yeah. And and it's interesting what you're saying in, in the sense that I remember... I don't know, the last two years or, or more, we covered Wizz Air opening new routes and bases like on a weekly basis. It was insane how many uh, routes they opened. Uh, it, I was like, I was telling writers, should we do like a like a summary at the end of the week or at the end of the month? Because, you know, it makes me wonder, just comparing countrywide. Yeah, or- for sure. And, and the thing that I'll call out is that Goal was a smaller airline in 2023 um, in terms of seats and available seat miles than it was in 2019, right? Mm. In 2019, it had about 45 million seats and about 31 um, billion, uh, 32 billion ASMs. In 2023, it had about 40 million seats and about 27.2 billion ASMs. So just, just again, highlighting that that growth um, point that I, that I that I made a second ago. Um but yeah, so yeah, I mean, I, I just like I don't I don't think this was this is a surprise to anyone that's been paying attention. Um, I think there's a lot of financial factors and sort of balance sheet factors that went into this, but I think there's also like sort of structural market forces that they're going to have to react and restructure in response to. It was intelligent. So Aero Mexico, that was the other one you called out. This is a lot more interesting because it seems, at least as far as the best reporting on this topic has kind of laid out, that the Big issue here at hand is access to Mexico City's main airport. Yes. Um, and of course, the backstory here is that, um, you know, Mexico City was in the process of building an, like a huge sort of new mega hub airports uh, at Texoco. And um, that was canceled when the current president of Mexico, AMLO, was elected and he shifted the plan from building a off like a sort of a, a, a new hub that would solve Mexico City's capacity problems to um, try to shift passengers to, you know, an airport far outside of the city. And in order to protect this bad decision, he's been sort of turned like his government has been slowly turning up the screws on capacity and access to Mexico City's main airport, Benito Juarez Airport. And um, the uh and in an attempt, misguided, I would I would sort of add to drive passengers to uh, Felipe Angeles Airport. Um, I think IFA is the is the yeah uh, the um, 
Uh, yeah. Aeropuerto Internacional. Yeah, sure. So the proximate cause here has nothing to do with the structure of the market. And it seems like it is political pressure um, to try and get the beneath the treatment of U.S. carriers trying to fly into into the main Mexico City airport yeah. um, to kind of, you know, resume access, so to speak. Uh, yeah. So this is, this is a really interesting one. Uh, you know, again, the sort of original sin here is AMLO's decision to cancel the um well, the allow me to superior get solution. Yeah, allow me to get emotional <laughs> here because that's what I do really well. I, I, I've been studying the Mexico aviation markets for, gosh, I mean, probably decades at this point. Dating back to the first time that I ever flew Aeromexico going from Dallas to Estapa via Mexico City Airport. And then sometimes it was operated by Mexicana, sometimes by Aeromexico because they had a little thing together. Then they separated. There's all of this really fascinating stuff in Mexican aviation. And there's all sorts of drama and chaos. And it's a huge market. I mean, it is a mega market. It's not insignificant. And I would even argue that it's probably even more significant than like a Dubai if you think about the entirety of the country. And that is also why it's so unfortunate that the people that pay the price of this are its citizens. You know, the market is so large and the economic potential in Mexico is so there that there could be some real productive value that comes out of more capacity out of Mexico City. And that's just not going to happen. And it sucks. And I work with some Mexican clients that are also spread out throughout the region. And I don't think that it's going to be anyone else's losses besides Mexico City. Because when you have now like the surrounding cities of Puebla and Aguas Calientes and... um, and uh, uh, Toluca, you know, investing in their own airport and aviation infrastructure. Well, you not only have these private operators and public operators like Azur and, um, you know, others in, in Mexico that, you know, can maybe do good work, but you could see something along a transformation line that you've seen in India with the smaller airports. I just don't think that Mexico City, especially just the Distrito Federal, Ciudad de Mexico, I don't think that that airport, Benito Juarez, is going to get the break it deserves. And it sucks also that, like, the city is built on a lake. And so there's the more time that is spent delaying these projects, the more is at stake with the way the land is going to change because the city is going to sink over time. Yeah. Thank you for thank you for letting me have my little emotional moment. It's been a minute. Well, I- Here's the thing, right? With 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 the current structure of um of sort of Felipe Angeles Airport, I, I, AIFA, um, and Benito Juarez, we've literally seen this story play out so many times before. It happened. In, it happened in Montreal with Mirabelle and Dorval. It happened in um uh, it happened, of course, in Tokyo with Tokyo uh, Narita and Haneda. It has happened in Milan with Milan and um with uh, Linate and Malpensa. Pretty much every time, right, what ends up happening is unless you protect the further out airport, right, unless you give it some sort of special status, you give it a monopoly on long haul flights, whatever, um, the, the, the further out airport never wins over convenience, right? Fun, fundamentally, right, Mexico City airports, if you were to sort of, you know, grab a point in the city, the city center of, of Mexico City, right, Mexico City airport, like the Benito Juarez airport is, you know, 15 kilometers outside the center of the city. Right, IFA Airport um, is forty-five kilometers outside of the city. Right, and with Mexico City's famous, very famous sort of heavy traffic, you know, maybe it's a half hour to get to Benito Juarez and an hour and a half or two hours to get out to IFA. So the only way this works, right? Set aside whether I disagree with the original decision to cancel the Texaco sort of uh, project, which I, I of course do. Even if I were to say, okay, you made that decision, you sort of did your politics thing, fine. Why in the world wouldn't you at least close the Benito Juarez airport and just force everyone to shift over to IFA? 
right? Like if, if you're if you're gonna make the original decision, why wouldn't you make the secondary decision to actually make Ifa a viable airport, right? It's not the end of the world for an airport to be so far outside the city. If, if you've ever been to Bangalore, you're gonna experience this when you go this time, right? That airport is you know miles outside of the city, right? So like it can work, right? That's one of the fastest growing airports in the world. But part of the reason it worked is that they closed the much more convenient in-city HAL airport. So even if I were to take take it as a presumption that, okay, you know, for whatever reason, Amlo felt like he had to close Texogo Airport, why in the world wouldn't you close Benito Juarez Airport? And by the way, they wouldn't be in this current predicament for their flag carrier Aeromexico if they had made that decision because anyone would have access to IFA that wanted it. Right. And I, I, I do want to maybe counterpoint on one thing you mentioned, which was the far out airports. And would you say that the one nation or not nation, the one kind of grouping of airports that has done this well, one, I would say Australia, right? It is so easy in Canada and Australia for that matter to get to and from the city's major airports, uh, based on my experiences and even some, you know, us airports too, but Asia has really just got it kind of nailed, right? Like the experience traveling from Haneda to downtown Tokyo or from Seoul Airport to Seoul or Hong Kong Victoria Express. Heck, I would even argue London with the Heathrow Express. Granted, it's so much more expensive, but also like it works. Yeah, well, I mean, the the, the common factor in all of those is a direct, fast train connection to those um, to those sort of further out airports. The, the the thing that the, the thing that's tricky though is that in Mexico City, right, um, infrastructure like it's so dense and so populated that it wouldn't be that easy to build a train connection in that spot, right? It, it, it's not as simple um, as in London where you had a lot of existing track infrastructure that could be could be utilized, right? It's it's a much more complex um, building problem, but e- even even accounting for that, yeah, I do agree that like if they had a structure where you could take the train to and from the city. Um, I think that that would would do a world of good for IFA Airport. But I think fundamentally, um, the kind of lesson that you should learn is when you have that sort of far out greenfield airport, you've got to protect it till it can establish itself. Now, in some cases, like in Bangkok, for example, they did this. And then they actually went back on that decision and reopened Dunwang because uh, Suwernaboom was not um, large enough in terms of capacity. And today, the you know Bangkok airport system is three times its size, the size of it was in 2006 when um, Dunwang first was closed and Severna Boom opened. So you always have the option to, you know, relaunch or resuscitate um, Benito Juarez Airport um, down the line. But why not close it? It's it's and it's a it's an overstuffed facility anyway. Um, we really haven't even covered the the whole Delta Aeromexico angle of this. I think that my sense is that right now it is mostly a political sort of pressure tool. And that this decision will be reversed if Mexico goes back on its sort of slot and capacity controls at Benito Juarez. Um, but I think the more interesting question is, what in the world is their airport strategy before we even get started on things like the New Mexican, which is just, I, I don't even know how to categorize that one. Yeah, yeah. And it, just before we get into that, I wanted to go back to the reasons why the Department of Transportation would make certain decisions. Not that it's a black box, because they did say that the decision was, you know, they cited recent actions uh, by the Mexican government related to uh, Benito Juarez, and they didn't mention the other airport. However, it is uh, military run, if I'm uh, not mistaken. And and they also mentioned, like the DOT also mentioned that Mexico was uh, out of compliance with the existing bilateral air service agreement. Um, and international norms. So that's what the DOT is saying. So um, I don't know what Delta is going to do. I don't know if that's my pressure point, but I'm sure it is. And it's certainly political. Yeah. I mean, like, this is so nuts too that, like, as I was mentioning earlier, like my Mexico kind of evolution, right? I, I had just like growing up in Dallas, Fort Worth, all of this exposure to the drama of Aeromexico, Me- Mexicana, and Dallas, Fort Worth Airport. And then eventually American and then all of the stuff that American did out of DFW and how for the longest time it almost seemed like American was just going to always trail United or Continental rather out of Houston. Then it just so happened that uh, Continental out of Houston, when it became United, uh, you know, the Mexico markets were kind of less so, 
you know, the this this huge sort of selling point for the airline because now it's so much larger and it's more global and what have you. And so American just really also capitalized on having a flight from Japan <clears throat> twice a day on American and Japan Airlines and then being able to just kind of capitalize on the auto transit traffic over DFW into smaller secondary and tertiary Mexican markets. So meanwhile, Delta is getting in bed with Aeromexico and for the longest time, I mean, this got political with the Trump campaign, with the Gulf carriers flying to the U.S., you know, and then Emirates wanting to fly to Mexico City, or Barcelona. There was just all of this sort of megalomania drama where things were just pulled together and it was just Delta, you know, kind of namely off under Richard Anderson, just, just like stomping around and how important the Aeromexico slash also goal investments were for for Delta's portfolio. And then, you know, a few years later, I think Ed Bastian saying like, oh, wow, most SkyTeam airlines and most SkyTeam carriers don't do anything for us, right? So how is Delta going to react this time around? What is Delta going to say? Does Delta care as much? Has Delta realized that its ambitions in Latin America really just have not achieved any of the goals that they wanted? Because I would argue that they haven't. I'm sorry, that that may be controversial, but like, really, where are we seeing the returns from this? Um, you know, they've seen returns in, in London. They've probably received returns in Seoul from partnerships with Virgin uh, Atlantic and with, with the Korean Air. I don't see them getting the same out of Aeromexico. And certainly, as we've talked about before, not Aerolineas Argentinas. LATAM is still questionable. I, I think LATAM is going to prove to be useful for, for Delta, for sure. Um, I think that if you look at... Aerolineas is a, a whole other bag of uncertainty given the, stru- the economic changes that are happening in Argentina. But if you look at sort of uh, Delta's situation, right, when it comes to Mexico... The fundamental problem that they face is that United has a hub in Houston and American has a hub in DFW and Delta has a hub in Atlanta, right? Atlanta is their sort of dominant Mexico hub, right? And so fundamentally, they just put you at a worse position. American also, of course, has Phoenix, which is, again, a huge source of demand for Mexican flights. The way Delta tried to solve this problem is by setting up a effectively a hub in Mexico City. And so I do think from a strategic perspective, this matters a lot. It matters probably less than it did in 2019 because close in sort of leisure, VFR and beach markets aren't doing so well from a revenue perspective. So I think from from Delta's perspective, it, you know, doesn't really mind one way or the other. But I think that what's what you're seeing here is less so Delta kind of being at the forefront of this. It probably serves Delta's purposes fine for slots to be constrained at Mexico City because that means that it can charge, you know, charge a better revenue premium on some of those flights. But the U.S. government is trying to leverage Delta to put pressure on Aeromexico, which it owns 20% of, to get Mexico's government to make a change, right? Like, like that, that's the, the chain of logic here. I'm not sure it's going to work, but I think that's like the chain of logic here. No, and and Delta also has a part, like a cargo partnership with Aeromexico, if I'm I mean, I would see FedEx maybe just being more, you know, angrier at this, I guess. This is a sidebar, but do you know that Delta operates five flights a day in mid-February from Minneapolis to Cancun? Yeah, I mean, Cancun's such a huge market. And and when I lived in Minneapolis, man, people are very serious about snowboarding. We talk about airline loyalty. We talk about credit cards and co-branded credit cards. I mean, Minnesotans, man, I'm telling you, of all kinds of income brackets were fiercely loyal to Sun Country. I'm just kidding. <laughs> they were fiercely loyal to Delta. Uh, some were to Sun Country, but that was really more bargain. But like people did not care about Southwest, American, United, any of those other ones. Delta all the way. Well, had the Sky Miles credit cards. People were constantly choosing to fly them places, especially wintertime getaway people that wanted to go to Cancun or Puerto Vallarta or San Juan or wherever. So the snowbird effect is big there and people rack up miles to spend on that card. So I believe it. I mean, there's so many flights a day also to Cancun from Dallas, Fort Worth. There's like, it's like one of the largest 
uh, international transborder markets from the United States. There's yeah, no in capacity to Cancun from Dallas, and there's to Mexico City. Mm. Yeah, no, that's 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 definitely believable. Um, I think that the interesting, the, the thing that's really interesting to me is that um, Minneapolis specifically almost seems to have like a Canadian demand pattern when it comes to some of those snowbird destinations, which is which is really fascinating. But but it, it's not to the Caribbean writ large, right? It's it's just specifically to Cancun. Because if you look at you look across the rest of the Caribbean, right? JFK is a much bigger sort of the quote unquote hub. Same with Atlanta. But if you look specifically at Cancun, they've got a ton of flights from Minneapolis, right? And I think also this expansion that Aeromexico has taken on for the U.S. and the expansion that it even had loaded to. I, I keep wanting to say Santa Lucia, but AIFA, um, a lot of that has been pulled. I mean, my poor DFW airport, they loaded a flight there and then it got pulled. I mean, like, I'm sure no one was booking. Uh, and so with some of these other missions of Air Mexico, like going back into Boston and going back to Washington, Dulles, like those are long flights. That's a lot of aircraft utilization time required for... Uh, Edo Mexico and for a 737 and I guess also we don't know what's going to happen with the Allegiant Airlines and was it Volaris or was it Viva Aerobus something like that like there are Viva Aerobus and I think it it um it's been shelves permanently if I'm not mistaken <laughs> I mean that thing is dead in the water I mean Allegiant Air, Air is the most quirky airline in the U.S. like literally it beats to its own drum talk about seeing itself as a travel company and like a freaking flying casino. I mean, that it's like, that's over there with like Hooters airlines. Right. Like, and yet they want to like do this little, you know, fun in the sun trans border with, you know, Mexico. I I'm just like, what? So frustrating. I've now, as, as you've been going on this little rant, I've been just like looking up idly capacity into Cancun um, do you know that DFW has uh, up to nine daily flights to Cancun, including one on a seven eight seven? Like, yeah, I mean, just like, they've always done. Wow, this. really? They've always done this. They even fly seven eight sevens from Chicago on occasions, and it's like, wow, the capacity of that aircraft is the same as a Spirit Airlines Airbus A three two one. And I was going to say the same as the Spirit Airlines A three nineteen. But same principle. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh my gosh! Like, jeez! Like, yes, sir. Wow. I mean, yeah, well, okay. Well, the, the even crazier one is United flies one of their domestic configured yeah. sevens. The um, Houston seven. Yeah. Yeah. 364 um, seats. So that, that is, that's, that's pretty, pretty hefty. Do those for, have like the seats that face backwards and like the eight of rest business class? They, they, they do. They have the 242. It is a very interesting flying. I, I flew one from Denver to Chicago last year. It's a very, very interesting experience. Don't they call them the rhymes with Edo birds? Like, (laughs) (laughs) I've been told, at least. Um, Well, so two hot destinations for different reasons, Boston and Cancun. Yep. Oh, man. One of them is literally hot, and one of them is, I guess, figuratively and spiritually hot. But even though you no longer live there and you had to bail. (laughs) I wasn't a big fan of Boston when I was living there, but here we are. Yeah, it seems a little bit more of a fantasy place to live than a realistic place to live, at least for me. I, I, I can handle I, the I level of snow. I don't think Boston level of snow. I I don't think you would want to. Well, actually, you might enjoy living in Boston. I certainly did not. Um, what, the club snows at one o'clock, which means like last call is like at 1230. You think that that fits my lifestyle? Okay, maybe. maybe, maybe, maybe. I, I forgot about that. That aspect of it. Yes, I, I do remember many a night out that was ended early because of Boston's unique <clears throat> operating hour structure. So at any rate, um, on that note, I think we've beaten a dead horse long enough. Uh, this has been the Airways Podcast. Thank you all for listening. As always, leave us a review uh, on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a rating wherever you listen to podcasts. I think we've had a new review um, since the last time we looked at this. Let me Ooh. see if I can pull up. Read it out. Wow. Read to you. I, I, yeah, that, that's, that's Maybe it was like do. the review I asked my brother to write. <laughs> 
Yeah, but this is like great. said something positive about the podcast and my family <laughs> group text thread the other day. I was like, I like the cast's perspective on the industry. I like to know what competitors are up to in their analysis. Although there seems to be a sense of, do I look like I fly economy when discussing carriers and their equipment? Overall, a good way to spend two hours or so a month. Um, <laughs> wow. Okay. I'll take it. Good. Do I look like I fly? Who do they think we are? The points guy? Come on. I'm yeah, Joe Blind Kelly. I can't hide Deves. I just want to say for the record that I recently did an analysis of my flighty stats for 2023. So I can explicitly say that in 2023, I took 125 total flights out of which, uh, let me see if I can figure out what the balance of cabins was here. Um, out of which 72 were in economy. So for the record, I do fly economy um, plenty on short haul flights. And uh, yeah, that's that's the that's the extent of my defense there. Do you want to guess how many flights I took in 2023? Uh, off the top of my head, I'm going to say like 25, maybe. Nope. Less. Wow. Less. And none of them were on Condiasa. Where, where's your support? For <laughs> you? Oh, <laughs> you wish that I could. Uh, well, I, that. I only flew I was, 18. Oh, wow. How's 2024 looking? I don't know for me in the beginning, but I don't have any other trips planned besides that. I mean, it is going to be a fortune though. for my dog, Sasha, to be dog set for the time period I'm going. So oh, uh, send Sasha to Dallas. I'll, I'll look after him for free. Are you for real? How will I do that? Uh, uh We should actually, we should actually there is a service. check the timing. But I, I, yeah, I, I like I, I, w- I would even drive up if it, if it was on a weekend. I would even drive up and grab, take him back down. Assuming that I'm going back to Chicago later, <laughs> I, I could drive him back up. But, but the bigger issue is, is like it would have to correspond with a period where I'm actually at home for a consistent period of time. So that's we, we could table this for the next time I'm in Texas. Most likely that will happen. I'll, I'll come back to Texas for a long period of time in, in the winter because. I really feel like I haven't had the worst winter here in Chicago just simply because I got six weeks away back in like November, December. And then I also have like a vacation in India for two weeks coming up. So I won't have to really deal with it out here. Um, but yeah, no, this has been a really fun podcast to record. Thanks so much for the feedback that you've given us and definitely continue to rate, review and subscribe. It, it helps make this fun and enjoyable for us. Please suggest topics. Like we've promised, we do have some guests that we intend to bring on. And of course, always please be able to check out our magazine and our fantastic stories online. Thanks to our incredible editor and podcast producer, Helvi. That's right. That's right. And I want to thank everyone who has subscribed. The numbers are growing. And yeah, read two comments saying that they like the podcast and they just want to, you know, contribute to, to what we're doing here. So again... You know, it's always a pleasure to hear you both discuss aviation. I always learn something new. So thank you both for being here and everyone for listening to the Airways podcast. See you later. All right. Carol.